going to be in John 9 today, this morning, uh, at verses 1 through 3. If you're using one of our Blue Bibles, it's on page 522. And today is going to be kind of a, it's a tough topic to talk about. Um, we're going to be looking at personal suffering. And if I'm, if I'm being honest, I had one of, the, just one of those really, really busy weeks that really just stretched me. I had a lot of things going on other than teaching. And so I remember Thursday, as I was trying to prep this teaching, I was kind of compiling it all together and throwing everything together. And then we had this teaching meeting where we go over teaching. And as I spoke it, I spoke it completely intellectually. And one of the guys that gave me feedback was like, hey man, you talked about suffering completely intellectually. And it's an emotional subject. And I realized that in my rushing, I had forgotten that, oh, suffering's actually a real thing <laughs> that we go through. And as I was sitting in the back, during worship, I was just looking at everybody and then I was thinking about my life. And I've had a, I mean, by all means, a great life. Like good family, protected, Christian family, uh, very good upbringing, like everything's super solid. I have scars that hurt me so bad. There have been sufferings that I've experienced that really, really hurt me. So as I was looking out, I was just thinking like, that's all of us. No matter where we come from, no matter what our age is, no matter what state we were born in and raised in, what, what our family was like, we've all had suffering. And, you know, there just comes this time in life where we realize that suffering is not just for CNN headlines or people groups on other continents, but that it's for us, like that we experience it. And so I think about a time where I was in eighth grade and uh, all the way through seventh grade, I had been to Christian schools, okay? Like really tiny, like 100 people, K through 12th grade Christian schools. And so in eighth grade, I get introduced to this big public school and I'm like four foot three. I was a little taller than that, but it was pretty close to four three. I had an afro because my hair is ridiculous if I let it grow out. You should, there's a lot of stuff in my hair right now to prevent it from. And I, I show up at this public school and very quickly, I get identified as the short Christian kid that doesn't curse. Because in eighth grade, if you've been there, you know, is super rebellious. It's like, you say a dirty word every now and then and people are like, oh shoot, that dude's crazy. Like, whoa. And, uh, and I wasn't that guy. Uh, I wouldn't say that God had like completely transformed my heart. I just knew curse words were bad, so I didn't do it. And I quickly stood out for that. And I remember like walking up to groups of friends and then being like, hey, the dude's here. Like, don't curse around him. And they'd laugh at me. And in a sense, I was like experiencing this like social awkward suffering, right? It's like this, this weird type of suffering. So suffering takes many shapes and forms. Right? I think about when I was in high school, some friends were out driving and I wasn't with them. And one of them didn't have a seatbelt and they got in a car accident and the guy without the seatbelt was ejected from the car. And I remember being in the ER that night and the pastor coming out and telling the whole group of people, just a bunch of teenagers in the room, like he didn't make it. And I remember just the, the sound that it made, the noise in the room and me going to a bathroom and looking at a mirror and trying to figure out, is this real life? Like what just took place? Or I remember 15 years ago, my grandma got diagnosed with ovarian cancer. Like she was young and she rocked, she was awesome. And she lived for 11 years and she was in and out of chemo treatment. And she had almost convinced that she's never gonna die from this. She's gonna dominate this. Cause you're only supposed to live like, I think three to five years with ovarian cancer. And she made it to 11 years. And I remember preaching her funeral and it just being so surreal that someone that I love so much and had so much experience with died. And I just told stories that all of us relate to. We've all had moments where like suffering came to us. There's just this moment where suffering meets us at our front door. 
And the question isn't if, if we'll suffer. None of us are wondering, will I ever suffer? But we know it's when we suffer, how will we suffer? And so as we talk through this, I just ask for like grace because this is a hard subject. Because uh, what we're gonna talk about today is that I believe this, I believe in the DNA of the gospel that suffering is intricately connected with the work of God being displayed. And that's hard to talk about because suffering sucks. It hurts. We feel like no one can relate. We can feel alone. We feel isolated. But specifically personal suffering, I believe in the DNA of the gospel is intricately connected with the work of God being displayed. So I'm gonna pray over us. I'm gonna pray for the spirit to do its thing and to give me wisdom because this is hard to talk about. Um, but I also think God has something beautiful in this. Um, so I'm gonna drink some water, then I'm gonna pray, and then we're gonna talk about it, all right? God, I am so aware. I'm so, I'm so aware that we hurt, and God, I can't. I can't do this topic, like the talk of suffering and pain and hurt and wounds that like break our hearts. And we just ask why, and I can't do this justice. Um, I pray for faith, Jesus, in your name. People have come in here and they, they hate you and uh, they're pretty sure it's all your fault. And uh, God, I pray that you would restore faith this morning by your Holy Spirit. God, sin has really wrecked a lot and uh, we're confused sometimes. And uh, God, I just pray in the name of Jesus, would you point us to your heart, oh God? Would you consume your people? God, anything that's said that's inaccurate and not true of you, um, God, uh, give us very short-term memories and help us to forget it. But God, I pray that the truth of the gospel, the hope in our pain, the beauty and the love of God in the midst of a broken world, God, would you stamp that on our souls? Would we never forget it? Would we walk through this humbly, not assuming that we have all the answers or that our logic and our understanding dictates the reality of the world? You are sovereign. So God, I talk about this humbly. May we submit to the authority of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, we're gonna be in John 9, uh, one through three. I'm gonna read this for a second. It says, as he passed by, this is Jesus, he saw a man blind from birth and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So there's three things I want us to see here. There is this man and he's born blind since birth, okay? So immediately we're introduced to a pretty hard situation, a pretty unique situation. Like when we hear a man is born blind, some of us have like the understanding of what blind means, but not all of us can relate, right? So this is kind of a, a unique 
sense of suffering. And I want us to notice the disciples' instinctive response upon seeing a man who has entered into unique suffering that no one can seem to relate to or understand. What do the disciples say? They immediately ask why. Jesus, why is this happening? And then their second instinct is to assign blame. They need a reason. It's someone's fault. So their first choice is the man. What did this man do wrong? Like this really must suck for him. Like what did he do to deserve this? And then their second option is the parents. What must the parents have done? And I bet the parents had even asked themselves that question. Like, dang, like what did we do like, to, to cause this to happen? And I even think about like his parents uh, going to doctor's appointments, trying to find remedies or going to priest, having people lay hands. I even picture the son like maybe going to sleep at night thinking at some point, maybe I'll just wake up and see. I'll know what seeing means. And he kind of shakes his head like, that doesn't make any sense. I've been blind forever. Can you relate to this way of thinking right here? Like when you're in a moment of pain, when you're in a moment of suffering, like a personal suffering and you can't understand it, you can't for the life of you make sense of it. And you say, why God, first of all, second of all, what did I do? Like, what did I do? What was the cause and effect of this relationship? Or maybe if you're not a Christian, you just assume karma, right? Like you don't have to be a Christian to think that it was your fault, like karma. Like I must've done something bad along the way and everything comes back around and I got hit with it. Or maybe you're just like evolutionist. And it's like, this is just the way the world fell. And it fell pretty hard on me today. But I want us to look at Jesus's response in verse three. He says, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So Jesus reveals that this man's suffering, his lifelong journey with blindness is not a judgment on his character. It's not a judgment on his parents' mistakes or character. His parents did not need to go and look through their past and find out what they did wrong but that he was born this way, that the works of God might be displayed in him. So this is a big moment, okay? Because Jesus came to establish the kingdom of God. And if the soul is eternal and everything else fades away, then the kingdom of God is extremely important. So Jesus takes this moment with this man to point that his suffering is making a way for the everlasting works of God to be displayed in him. And this is where I wanna camp out for a minute, okay? Because there is suffering in our world. You have or are or will experience personal suffering. But where we're gonna camp out is that God can display his works in the midst of this suffering. So if you've read ahead though in this story, if you've heard this story before, you might think, you might have seen that he was healed. The blind man was healed. And if you're like me, you immediately, you cop, it's like, it's a cop out. You immediately disconnect from that story. You're like, well, my grandma died. So cute story, but death actually happens sometimes in those situations. Like sometimes the blind guy stays blind, right? Sometimes the dead person stays dead. And that's really, really hard. But I want us to look at some stories and I'm not gonna have you turn there. I'm just gonna cover over a few stories. And I want us to see how the glory of God can be displayed, whether through life or through death. And the reason I think this is an important conversation 
is that if we are followers of Jesus, then we hold this word to be from God, right? And we believe this is the word of God. And there are men and women long before us that have suffered. They've walked through this. With faith in Jesus, they've experienced immense pain and immense suffering. And if we can benefit from the path they walked that we are now walking, I want us to benefit from it. So that's my hope for today, that we can benefit from those who have went before us. And as we talk about these stories, I want you just to pay attention to how suffering led people to pray and praise God and also how their suffering led others to God. Because throughout this, my hope is that we see that what the enemy wants to use for your despair and your doubt, God wants to use to display his works and to deliver you, even if through death. So the first story I want us to see, this comes out of Acts 7, uh, 54, goes through chapter eight through three. There's this guy named Stephen and he believes in the gospel. And at this time, the gospel's pretty brand new. The thought of a Messiah actually having come, saved the world, and he was a carpenter guy. It's like a pretty insane story. And he preaches this like epic sermon and the people hear it and they just call it lies. They, they don't wanna believe any part of it. Um, and the people that disagreed responded differently for the most part than people that disagree and are like in Nashville respond. They thought the idea would be to stone him and like murder him. Okay, so really extreme reaction. They wanna hear none of this and they wanna take the man's life. And so they begin to stone him. And Stephen starts saying he sees the son of man at the right hand of God and then begins to pray this surreal prayer and prays that the sins would not be held against them as they pelt stones at him to take his life. And then the passage says that the people throwing the stones were taking off their coats and throwing them at a man named Saul's feet. They would take off their coats to give them more leverage, to throw the rocks harder. And this man named Saul was watching. And then it says that Saul began to persecute the church. He began to arrest men and women of the faith. So there's just this like surreal moment where a man so faithful, so in love with God, comes to the end of his life because of that faith. And in this moment, it's kind of easy to feel like God didn't really show up. Like that's a harsh reward for being a faithful servant to God. Like where was God in this moment? But yet if we actually pay attention to Stephen, we see that in persecution, in this suffering, his faith actually grows stronger. He begins to see Jesus more clearly and at the sight of Jesus begins to pray forgiveness over the people persecuting him. And if we're being honest, unbiased, nothing speaks to the evidence of the Holy Spirit like a man praying forgiveness for those in the middle of murdering the man. Is that not insane? Could anything speak more volumes of that man's faith and the reality of the presence of God in his life? And here's what's even crazier. This guy named Saul, that seemingly insignificant detail, the people are throwing their coats at the feet of Saul, and then he begins to persecute the church. A chapter later, he meets Jesus on a road to Damascus to go, to go arrest more Christians, and Jesus transforms his life, so much so his name is changed from Saul to Paul. I don't quite understand the significance of the name change. I think it's an identity thing. Saul to Paul, okay? And Paul becomes one of the greatest missionaries to ever walk the earth. Now, this may not seem connected, 
Because Paul or Saul does not see Stephen and say, man, that's crazy, I'm a believer, right? It actually fuels his anger. But think about this, before Saul is ever converted, he sees the example of a life so in, like, uh, empowered by the Holy Spirit that he's willing to die for the faith. Before Saul ever becomes Paul and dies for the faith himself, he sees a man so in love with Jesus that he forgives the very people stoning him. What a testimony of faith. And now we're gonna fast forward a few chapters. We're gonna go to Acts 16, verses 22 through 34. And there's a story about Paul and Silas. Now, this is a really normal story that you're gonna relate to really easily, okay? There's this woman possessed by a demon and she's telling the future that way. (laughs) So like what you experienced at Belmont or Vanderbilt, You you know what I'm talking about. So anyway, there's this woman and she's possessed by a demon, okay? And she's able to tell the future. And there's some men that are taking advantage of this supposed gift and they're making money off her, fortune telling. Paul and Silas see it, recognize the evil in it, and they cast it out in the name of Jesus. The woman is healed. As a consequence, the women are no longer, that woman's not worth any merit, right? She can't make money for them, so they're very angry. And again, at this time, when people didn't like what you did, they responded rather aggressively. And so Paul and Silas, Silas is Paul's like associate pastor, I guess. They're both missionaries. Paul and Silas are beaten with rods and put into chains. And there's this surreal moment where Paul and Silas, out of their faithfulness to God, heal someone and their consequence to that beautiful action of which we would applaud is being beaten with rods and thrown into jail. And there's a really important detail that comes after this. There is no record of Paul and Silas saying, why God, why? How could you? Where are you? Why did this happen? What did we do to deserve this? Instead, Their response is honestly insane. They begin to sing praise and sing hymns in the prison. As they are singing praises and singing hymns in the prison, an earthquake takes place. Because of the earthquake, chains are freed and all the prisoners are free to to run away. And the jailer sees this happen. And his only job is to keep prisoners in jail. That's what a jailer does at this time. And when he sees them all free, He feels like it's all over. And I guess the consequences would have been heavy because he goes to kill himself. And Paul and Silas, instead of fleeing, say, don't kill yourself. Don't do that. None of us have fled. His next response, what must I do to be saved? Who the heck are you guys worshiping? What's he up to? I'm in. Not only does the jailer come to the Lord, he and his entire family come to Jesus. It is insane. And here's what I thought about. Growing up here in this story, I'm like, yeah, God, if you'd send an earthquake, I'd believe too. That's what I thought. But here's the thing. If they don't sing praises and hymns and that earthquake takes place, I do not believe the jailer cares. I believe he thinks something crazy just went down and he's got to restore order or kill himself, right? I don't think he asked, how can I be saved? I don't think that it was Paul and Silas's freedom that led the jailer to salvation. I think it was their chains because while they were in the chains, they sang praises and hymns and that testified to their belief. And then the freedom led him to ask the question, wait, who do you believe in? That you were loyal to the God that just freed you, but before you were actually free, like while you were suffering. So I don't think it was the freedom that led to salvation. I think it was the chains and the suffering itself that led to the salvation of many. That was the testimony. I wanna give us one more example in Mark 15. And this is of Jesus himself. So Jesus is in similar situations that we've already covered. He's taught, 
He's proclaimed the kingdom of God. And now he's been arrested, okay? So the disciples, when Jesus is arrested for his teachings and for his healings and all those things, the disciples run and abandon him. So imagine being with your best friends. You get caught up in a bad situation, you get arrested, and your friends, instead of staying loyal to you, they all just flee. How loved would you feel right there, right? Jesus alone. On top of that, one of the disciples named Judas had actually betrayed Jesus. People wanted to know where Jesus would be late night, and Judas said, give me this much money and you can have Jesus. That's so dirty on Judas's part. Really frustrating stuff right there, okay? That's, that's tough for Jesus, okay? So Jesus is arrested at the betrayal of one of his disciples and the rest of his best friends flee. He is then flogged to where his entire body is an open body wound. This incredibly, just a massacre here. Then they put a crown of thorns on his head just to mock the fact that he ever said he represented the kingdom and that he was the king. And then he is on a cross, half naked, if not all the way naked, nailed to two wooden beams, bleeding out, okay? We do not get a pretty picture of Jesus. None of this is shouting worship. None of this is shouting revival. This is shouting loser, dying, failure, liar, not who you said you were. And I want us to notice in Mark 15, 39, it says this, and Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion, the Roman soldier, probably in charge of this crucifixion or at least played a role, when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in the way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. There was no louder way to scream, you failed, than a crucifixion naked, ashamed in front of your entire family. Jesus wasn't ashamed, but that's what the, that's what the situation would call for, right? There was nothing that screamed failure more than this. And note this, the resurrection hasn't happened and the centurion soldier knows nothing about a resurrection. That has not come to play, so get that out of your mind. The way Jesus died leads the centurion to say, surely this man was the son of God. Surely a man who can be nailed to a tree and cry out, Father, forgive them. They don't know what's going on. They don't have the understanding of what is taking place right now. Forgive them what they're doing. The way he died led to salvation. All of these examples, whether through life or through death, it was the suffering that gave testimony to the reality of God. Now, I believe that we can read these stories and we can be tempted or have the impulse to feel completely separate from these stories. But I really do believe this. In the DNA of these stories, that suffering being intricately connected with the work of God, that is for us. We can take that, we can accept that. So I don't know where you're at today. I don't know what you brought with you. I don't pretend to. I don't know what happened to you as a child or as a teenager or this week. I don't know what you're gonna go through, but I know that a lot of suffering happens. I know that there's natural suffering like sickness, pain, death, blindness, like in John 9. I know there's the suffering of just following Jesus. Following Jesus can be super tough. Like we follow a Messiah that says, if you want life, lose it. That's how you get it. Die to yourself. You ever experienced what dying to yourself feels like? You ever experienced trying to stop being envious of someone or angry? Kid you not, five days ago, I wept in my car because I was so angry at how hard it was to not be angry. I was, 
guys, weeping, identity crisis. Like, why is my heart so sucky? It just, sti- I need to stop saying suck so much. It was just so dirty. Like, I just, I hated how hard it was to be like Jesus. I'm like, Jesus, I want to be like you. I'm not like against being like you, but the things you're calling me to die to, they seriously hurt. I remember being exposed to like just sexual immorality when I was like nine years old, like didn't ask for it, wasn't looking for it. And it led to a life of just like sexual addiction and just really perverse and dark stuff. Being free from that was not glorious. It was not beautiful. It hurt. There was suffering. It fleshes itself out in really ugly ways. Like that hurts. Dying to yourself hurts. Or I think about the suffering that comes from persecution. And admittingly, in Nashville, Tennessee, in America, most of the time, if not all the time, at least not yet, we don't suffer like what we've seen here. Like we don't fear being stoned. But I do believe this. If we follow Jesus, if we really follow him, guys, we are promised suffering. It will happen. We will be persecuted. In a dark and broken world, when we bear the name of Jesus, many will come to know Jesus and will be fully satisfied. But many will not be cool with Jesus, and they won't be cool with you being cool with Jesus. And we will suffer, even though I don't totally know what that looks like. But regardless of what type of, and I haven't covered all of suffering. That was not a possible task. So there's other types of suffering that you're thinking of right now, and and I hear that, and I validate that. But what I want to do right now is encourage us, because what the enemy wants to do in your life, and he wants to cause despair and doubt and to separate you from God, God wants to reveal his works in your situation. I think about Acts 4. Peter and John had just preached another, a lot of epic sermons in Acts, okay? They preached an epic sermon. Thousands come to believe. They are arrested and they are threatened. And upon their release, they are left with the threat of do not preach anymore. Their response is to go and pray for boldness. They pray to God and say, consider their threats. Grant us boldness. That is what I want. That when suffering's at our door, God, consider my suffering. Grant me boldness. Grant me endurance. Grant me courage. May we be a people that follow Jesus. And suffering does not dictate how we see Jesus because Jesus suffered. But that Jesus is who we cling to closer in the midst of suffering. And another story comes to mind, Jesus and Lazarus. There's this crazy language with Jesus and Lazarus. So Lazarus dies and Jesus tells people as he's sick and dying, this is for the work of God. And Jesus feels so cold right there. Like, no, Jesus, I hear you. Like Joshua, I hear you saying this is for the work of God, but oh my gosh, we need you. Stop talking about God right now. Come and help us, right? He dies. And there's this surreal moment where Jesus weeps. He weeps. So if you are here and what you're hearing is don't hurt, I am not saying that. Jesus is not saying that. Jesus hurt. Jesus wept. Jesus cried. His friends died. It hurt. But he promised the work of God could be displayed in the midst of your suffering. So as we walk into communion together today, I want us to just sit around and talk about what we are experiencing, the suffering we're experiencing. 
as we talk to each other, I, I want to remind you, like, you don't have to feel pressure. Being vulnerable is hard, especially when the topic is suffering. Okay, I'm not ignorant to that. That's a, that's a tough topic, and we're all suffering. There's some dark stuff in our lives and in the lives around us. But I do want to encourage you. Um, if you want to pray in the back, Larkin and I will be in the back. We want to pray. If you want to go pray by yourself, do that. But I encourage you to talk to one another. And we're going to just surround one question with each other as we take communion. Okay? What are you suffering with? Like, what is causing you suffering? What's hurting? And I want our response for each other to be that we pray the mess out of it, honestly. And that's it. I don't want you to give a reason to be positive or tell them to smile or just to keep their head up. It's like, no, pray to God. Pray for healing. Pray for courage. Pray for boldness. Pray for intimacy with God. And as you go this week, if you're like me, when you're crying in your car on Tuesday night, your instinct is not to press in deeper to God. <laughs> you question where God is without actually wanting to talk to him. <laughs> that's, what, that's my instinct for some. I'm like, God, where are you? But no, <laughs> that happens. But isn't that, isn't that, have you done that? Isn't that so easy? It's like, God, I wanna be close to you, but do not talk to me. <laughs> You're getting the silent treatment, you know? It turns us into insane people. But if you're suffering, I wanna encourage you, like Jesus, like Stephen, like Paul, May we cling to Jesus in the midst of our suffering. And I'm telling you this, it is not impossible. I promise you, intimacy with God in the midst of your pain where you're not sure where God's at is not impossible. I believe it's impossible. That's me. I just can't believe it. But it is possible by the power of the Holy Spirit. People have done through this. You're not alone. You're not the first. You won't be the last, okay? So that communion, let's ask each other, what are you suffering with? And then just respond and praying for one another. Um, we'll let you guys discuss for eight to 10 minutes, if longer. We'll let Callie discern that and then uh, she'll lead us in worship, okay? So I'm gonna pray and then we'll talk. Again, Larkin and I will be in the back. Uh, God, whoa, man, you're um, good and this is all confusing. Um, I pray for more faith in you, Jesus. Um, Jesus, will you remind us you suffered. Like, we're not following a Messiah that, that didn't hurt. Uh, like, we're not in a faith of people that never hurt. So when we get hurt, I think sometimes I feel shocked and like no one can relate. And I, but honestly, the faith I follow right now is suffering, testifying to the goodness of who you are, as ironic and as much of a paradox as that feels like. God, give us faith. May your spirit be free here. Glorify yourself. Amen.